Welcome, friends, to the latest edition of The Learning Curve. And on this latest edition, we have some important and exciting news. So first of all, a big shout out, a big thank you to the wonderful Bob Bowden, who was my co-host for more than 20 episodes of The Learning Curve. Bob is a busy man. He's been a fantastic partner. He has been, in, in many ways, a sort of a partner in crime. Um, but Bob is, uh, is going to be a little bit more busy these days. And I'm excited to say that we have um, found someone to agree to co-host this podcast with me who's going to bring it just exactly the same way Bob did. He's just the wonderful, the amazing Gerard Robinson. Um, I'm so excited to spend time with Gerard. I'm so excited to get to dialogue with Gerard in his infinite wisdom. As many of you know, he's currently an adjunct scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. You also know him as a former Secretary of Education, Commissioner of Education, Executive Director of BAO, the Black Alliance for Educational Options. This is a man who's going to have a lot to say. Gerard, welcome to The Learning Curve. That was a very kind introduction. Thank you. Uh, we are so, so excited to have you. So, okay, any opening thoughts? You were, you were actually our first guest on this podcast, and now here we are co-hosting together. Anything you'd like to say to the, I'm sure, substantial listening audience? Well, first of all, you think about the number of shows that you and Bob had an opportunity you know, to do. You've got some of the best thinkers in the country on this subject, and just glad you reached at the bottom of the well and happened to find me and pull me up and <laughs> Let me be a part of uh, the next wave of the work. Well, we are we are really excited. So let's let's dive right in. So as our listeners are accustomed to, we've got a couple of stories of the week, and the first one I think is going to be um, it's sort of a preview for what we might talk about with today's guest, the great Neil McCluskey. But story of the week number one, um, this one is out of the New York Post, I believe. Um, New York education officials pause more private school control after backlash. Okay. So Gerard, on this podcast before we've had Jason Bedrick, who's who's actually writing a book on this topic. But this story in the news is a continuation of something we've talked about before. This ongoing debate in New York State about basically what it boils down to is the right or responsibility of the state to oversee or regulate independent schools. So this all stems from claims from a yeshiva reform group that some yeshiva schools in New York were, in their words, foregoing basic academic content in favor of immersing kids in religious instruction. And so this particular group, Yafed, asked the state to intervene. New York goes in, they conduct an, uh, an investigation, and then they come up with a plan that they're going to they're gonna regulate these schools in a manner that goes, let's just say it's far beyond the norm of what we've um, experienced thus far in private school regula uh, regulation. They suggested, for example, that the state should have a say over curriculum and hiring standards, and even that, this one's my favorite, local school boards should be responsible for vetting the independent schools in their areas, um, as, as if local school boards already uh, don't already have enough on their plate. But so... What's newsworthy is that this plan is now on hold because notably parents have revolted, independent school leaders have revolted, and now we don't know exactly what the hold is. We're not sure what they're holding for, but they're saying that these reforms are on hold. So at the end of the day, this isn't necessarily a new debate. Um, it's, you know, sort of state versus religious liberty, um, but it is a new and intriguing twist in, in this story. Gerard, what do you think about this? Well, I believe that there is a role for state departments of education to play in regulating 
regulating the delivery of education, whether it's public or private. So in this way, it's private. Uh, I do believe there's a small R uh, for regulation, and that's important for two reasons. Number one, when we have school-aged children who are in our state, we want to make sure that the adults, the schools, the institutions uh, are of a type that are preparing people to actually uh, become, you know, producers and participants in uh, the world of work and the world of ideas. So that's part one. Uh, part two, you know, I may differ sometimes with some of my colleagues who want no regulation, uh, having been in a position of regulatory authority, I can tell you, you want State Departments of Education involved. Not too much. I think the idea of, you know, picking the curriculum, uh, the idea of now almost cajoling state uh, boards of education to now be more involved, maybe a little bit too much. And then third, I do believe that, you know, religious institutions, which are older than the public school system we have in the United States, uh, they have a role to play in saying what they believe is important or not. So having so many families come out and having people uh, in Albany say, you know what, let's put a pause, uh, shows you the A, the power of, of parents, but also some of the thinking of lawmakers in state capitals who are trying to balance accountability with local autonomy. Well, Jared, let me push on that just a little bit because you have, you know, been a commissioner of education and a secretary of education. And so, yeah, I think that your view is a little bit different than some of our friends, especially in the private school choice world. What do you think, though, is the difference between regulating schools and forcing transparency into the system? I mean, you know, the, the, I'm a private school advocate, but I got to tell you, the mom in me, the citizen in me says like, is it possible that we could actually have schools that I'm not talking about whatever religious teachings are going on. I think that that is a, that is a religious liberty issue, but is it possible that we could have schools that really aren't educating kids? And would we, instead of like a heavy hand of regulation, be better off with transparency and asking schools to share exactly what is being taught and asking schools to prove in some form that there is learning taking place, whether or not there's accountability attached to that. What do you think about big T transparency, either coupled with or in place of little r regulation? I believe that accountability is a part of regulation, so I wouldn't separate the two. So if I've got a small r for regulation, then I would also have a small t for transparency. If you look at the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, uh, oldest urban-based voucher, well, scholarship program in the country, I had a chance to work there with Dr. Fuller at the Institute for Transformation of Learning, when we had the lift the cap campaign in that city, guess what? Transparency was a big issue. All of those who support the private schools, many of them religious uh, in our in that city, also support transparency. Yes, we'd like to make sure the curriculum of other things are in place. So I believe you can have transparency, accountability, and small regulation all at the same time without having a big uh, thumb imprint on religious freedom and opportunity. All right. Well, this debate's going to continue, I'm sure, with our friend Neil. So let's move on to our next story of the week, story of the day, story of the I don't know what day what day is it. I, I'm a working mother of three, so I can never remember. But this one, this so this one, originally in Stars and Stripes, we found it on Disability Scoop. Military families take fight for special education to Capitol Hill. So as if military families who give so much to this country uh, don't have enough trouble, sort of, you know, they move a lot, so finding the right school, the right fit for your child, especially if you're not being educated in like a, at a military base or military school. Um, 
you know, landing in a different community and having to navigate sometimes multiple times throughout a kid's educational career, what the best fit is, has to be incredibly difficult. Now, couple that with a child who has any sort of special educational need, let alone a child that has a specific or severe special educational need that can incredibly complicate decisions and and be a really tough thing for military families. So we have this week the story of a family. They have a daughter with significant special educational needs, and they placed the child, well, actually through their local school district where they were living in Virginia, the child was placed in a private school. Um, and, And the parents say that the kid went on. She wasn't being served well in the district. They were very happy with the private school placement. The private school was serving the child very well. She was, in fact, flourishing, they say. Um, And now, uh, and why is that? That's because federal law says that all kids are entitled to a free and appropriate education. If a district can't do it, they need to take um, the money that they, uh, that that child is due and use it to, um, to pay for private placement for the child. Now, cut to the school district changing its mind, I think one or two years in, saying that actually we think now we're capable of educating this child and we no longer want to pay for this, let's be clear, more expensive private school where the child is happy and flourishing. So now if it's not bad enough that, um, that this poor kid is being, is, is being a pawn in, in the game of these adults, um, now the family has taken on significant in the hundreds of thousands legal costs in order to fight the district, in order to fight to keep their child in the school that they believe is serving her best. So what this story details is that this family and others taking their fight to Capitol Hill to shed light not only on problems like this, but on other problems that military families face, specifically related to something called the Exceptional Family Member Program. This is a program that was established, it was supposed to protect military families, serving about 135,000 people. But this particular family and others are saying that their experience is an example that this program is in fact not working. So to my mind, this story highlights two really, really important issues. First of all, we're talking about special education, and this is something that all families, um, it it doesn't matter military or not, there are many, many families in this country that are just trying to find the right fit for their child with special educational needs, but also that military families are so often overlooked. Even those of us who advocate for school choice for everyone, we often forget that maybe military families deserve preference because of the lifestyle they lead, because of the sacrifices they've made. Um, I I wonder how this, if this story pulled at your heartstrings as it did at mine, Gerard. It sure did. Uh, I can think of uh, 2010, so we were talking a decade ago, when Governor Bob McDonald uh, was uh, the governor of Virginia, where I live. One of the pieces of um, uh, you know, legal documents, I'll say, that he supported was having Virginia join the military compact. Um, it, it's a basically, it's a compact where if a student in, let's say, Massachusetts is going to transfer to Virginia, which has a very large military population, that the students' credits uh, and courses, that they wouldn't lose all of that time that they've earned and have to start all over again. So being involved with that was important. And again, that was a decade ago. Him having also been involved in the military, he thought it was important. Number two, when we say parental choice, we often overlook uh, military families who have uh, one parent maybe in another base in the U.S. or maybe overseas. Some of those children actually change schools from grades one to 12 at least six times. And so we know that's a challenge. Wow. Wow. Uh, what really got to me is the amount of money that they had to spend out of pocket, over $200,000 in a legal battle with the school system. Now, I understand why school systems say that they can actually provide 
provide a better education. In a previous life, I worked for the District of Columbia Public Schools. You know, we spent approximately $33 million educating students uh, who had special education needs outside of our own system, which not only included sending students to Virginia and Maryland, but to other facilities. There are school systems who in fact have the human, technological, and financial resources to do a better job than some private or nonprofit organization. That's absolutely true. But I also want to make sure we don't overlook that if this becomes a cost game versus a character call, that's a big difference. If the school the child is in is working for the family, the child is thriving, and yes, it costs more money, that's a character call. Let the parents do that, and the parents have paid taxes into the system for years. They should have a benefit for that. Number two, if in fact the school system can prove that it should do better, then the parents should have to make a call either way. But I always tell people, when we say education, we talk about the roses and confetti of it. Education is an exercise in power. That's for families, it's for schools, it's for taxpayers. And this is seen playing out right now, but because it's a military family, and we know that military families or the military, when you look at poll numbers, are rate uh, higher than people in Congress in terms of trustworthiness, then yeah, this is going to pull at our at us in ways that for the last decade, families who've had their children, especially in scholarship program at the state level, had the same challenges. But maybe because this is a military family, their story will broaden it and bring in the other families who've been saying this who aren't in military homes for over a decade. Yeah, let's hope so, because I'm telling you, I mean, this, especially this special education students coupled with military service, this is, these are populations of, of, of folks that are too often overlooked and not, not given the help and the choices that they deserve. All right. Well, in just a minute, listeners, we are going to have with us Neil McCluskey of Cato. So stay tuned. So we are so thrilled to have with us today Neil McCluskey, director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. He is the author of the book Feds in the Classroom, How Big Government Corrupts, Cripples, and Compromises American Education. His writings have appeared in publications like the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and Forbes. So I'm sure you all know him, listeners. And in addition to his written work, Neil has appeared on PBS, CNN, and Fox News Channel, along with numerous radio programs, and now, of course, the Learning Curve podcast. He holds an undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, double major in government and English, a fellow English major, a master's degree in political science from Rutgers, and a PhD in public policy from George Mason University. Neil, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thanks for having me on. Oh, well, we're really excited to have you. Okay, so Director of Educa- for Educational Freedom um, at, at Cato, and a lot of our di- listeners will know what Cato is and know your work and know what you do. So let's just get right down to it. Um, every, all of us, myself, Gerard, you, we, um, we have worked in private school choice for some time. I want to know your take. So um, the hopeful part of me says that, you know, we see growing support for school choice. We definitely see support for school choice. We've seen programs blossom over the years. And now we're talking about things like education savings accounts, which we weren't talking about 10 or 15 years ago. We've seen an almost doubling in the homeschool population and more high quality digital learning options for kids, along with things like hybrid homeschool micro school options. So I want to know, Neil, if you think that these new 
ways of thinking about education, of doing school, new options are the wave of the future. How far do we have to go before these options are not just an exception to the rule, but more of the rule? And, um, and how are we going to get policymakers on board in more places? Well, I think that school choice is uh, an idea that's here to stay. Uh, I don't like to predict which you know type of choice, which thing somebody might choose, which one is going to be the next big thing. I just don't know about it. So, you know, is it going to be flipped classrooms? Is it going to be uh, somebody uh, creating an electrode that you can attach to your head and you get all the knowledge you could ever need? You know, I don't know what the next big thing is going to be, but I do think that school choice and the idea that parents should have a meaningful say in where their child goes to school beyond their ability to buy a house in the district they want to be in is something that's not going to go away. People want it. it it's certainly true that a lot of people are satisfied to some extent with their public schools. Many of them have chosen it again by where they've chosen to buy a house uh, or you know, purchase a, or rent a home. Um, but more and more people, even in, in some good districts, you know, quote unquote good districts, uh, they say they want school choice or they want course choice or they want more control over what their child is going to learn. And people who are in districts that they feel are not doing very well really want school choice. So we've got certainly kind of the, uh, the tip of the spear, I think, is always the private school choice programs. And I think we just passed half a million kids going to private schools uh, through private school choice programs, either vouchers or tax credits or ESAs. Um, charter schools, uh, they continue to grow. I thought, what's the last numbers around? Well, it's over 3 million kids, maybe 3.2 million kids. Uh, there's, I think, in many places an assumption you should also get choice within your district or within your state of public schools. And so I don't think school choice is going away. I do think we're in a bit of a a lull, you know, facing some headwinds we haven't for a little while. And actually, I think a lot of that is a reflection of bigger national politics that education doesn't have much control over. But overall, you know, uh, I'm very bullish on uh, what the future looks like in terms of how much school choice we're going to have. And is there a particular model that you that that you find is like sort of new and innovative and exciting? Uh, like, do you, do you see something that that might be coming to the fore that we haven't thought about? Whether it's you know the voucher being maybe sort of the first form that we talked about beyond being able to choose where you live. But have you seen anything in the past like just a few years that's really exciting to you? Uh, in terms of forms of ways to deliver school choice as opposed absolutely. to absolutely like policy do. mechanisms or even things that are coming up on the ground that like parents are thinking about doing i'm going to actually use my education savings account money to do x or y right use it for homeschooling plus yeah i, I definitely think that the concept of the education savings account uh is kind of the most revolutionary thing we've seen in school choice because it really goes beyond school choice it says, well, sure, you ought to be able to choose a school, obviously, um, but you also ought to be able to use money that is slated for your child's education uh, for all sorts of things that are not you know, traditional school. Um, it's things like if you need, if your child needs particular therapies, if you need tutoring in, uh, in a particular um, subject. All of these things are now encompassed in the ESA where we've gotten beyond this notion that's plagued education for a long time, that education is restricted to school. 
Uh, clearly, education is far more than school, and I think that the ESA has really started to capture that. Now, I do think that it, it may run into greater political headwinds, maybe than scholarship tax credits, because everybody likes the idea of a tax credit. Uh, not everybody, but many people just like the idea of somebody won't pay as many taxes. Maybe I won't pay as much in taxes, and that would be great. Um, uh, the ESA, I think people still have some trouble getting their heads around, um, uh, and they think, well, it's, what if somebody uses it for something I don't like? But it's clearly in its concept uh, 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 a, a huge evolution from the concept of school choice. And if you, I think, marry the idea, and we put out a paper on this, um, uh, Jason Bedrick, uh, Jonathan Butcher, uh, and Clint Bollock had a little to do with it. We put out a paper on the tax credit funded education savings account idea, uh, where you get these tax credits and ESAs, which I think will reduce the threat of regulation. And so I do think that that is really what the future is, is definitely ESAs and, and with a tax credit component. Hey, Neil, it's Gerard. Good to hear your voice. You too. So you've been involved in this work for a number of decades. You've seen some tremendous improvement. You've also seen challenges. So from a contemporary perspective, you know, in the last two State of the Union addresses, President Trump has proposed passage of a federal tax credit program. You and Cato have long been proponents of greater private school choice options. What's your take on the federal tax credit idea and what are its strengths as well as its weaknesses? Yeah, well, so the first thing that has to be said, especially if you're a school choice advocate, is that the heart of the administration is in the right place. Um, if you look at education, I don't think there's any way you say uh, that we're not better off if people have more choices. That said, I, I'm a, as you know, uh, a big school choice guy. I'm also a big federalism guy. And it's my reading of the Constitution, uh, and I think informed by things like the Federalist Papers, um, that the federal government doesn't have authority to govern in education. And that includes through things like tax credits. We want federalism where states make their own decisions, and they've tried that uh, in this in this proposal, but it would because it says, look, states, you decide whether you want to have a tax credit program of your own, and then you can your citizens can be part of the federal tax credit. Um, but not only is this going to complicate the federal tax code, uh, again, the federal government I don't think has any constitutional authority to be involved in education, and even as through the through the tax code, the federal government has specific enumerated powers, and those are the only ones it has. And the tax code exists to raise revenue to execute those powers. So if you don't have those powers, you can't just raise taxes or give tax breaks and say, well, yeah, we're doing something that's not what the Constitution allows us to do, but that's okay because we're just messing with the tax code. So I think it's a great idea to try and expand school choice. And I totally understand why people in states that don't have school choice programs say, but if the federal government doesn't involve, my state will never have this. Um, but that, I don't think, ultimately um, justifies setting aside the Constitution. So uh, I, I have serious reservations about this proposal from a federalism standpoint. And I, I'm a, you know, whether you like it or not, I don't think the prospects are good for it being passed because it would have to get through the House of Representatives. And right now, the House of Representatives is clearly not inclined to promote school choice. Yeah, absolutely. And I had a chance to uh, interview Secretary DeVos and Secretary uh, and, 
and Senator Cruz uh, last year at an event that the Ronald Reagan uh, Institute sponsored. It was a good, healthy conversation, and, and naturally, the questions of federalism were raised to the question both those who are Republican conservatives all the way to those who are libertarians. So I appreciate your point. You know, one of the things that people have said about choice, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, No Child Left Behind, whether it's now today, Every Student Succeeds Act, and and, and what takes place as, as it relates to choice. Many people said, listen, we believe there should be a robust footprint in any choice program because we want to make sure that we protect uh, students and families' civil rights. That choice has been an abusive program. We've got a ton of examples of that. I know you've heard that before. Where do you think, two things, one, what do you think about the argument that we've got to get the federal government involved in choice because if not, you're going to have an abuse of civil rights? And then number two, in the absence of choice, have we had those civil rights abuses already in place? Yeah, well, it's it's probably easiest for me, at least log- most logical for me to start with the answer to the second question, which is we have just copious examples of the public schools, the ones that are run by government, trampling on civil rights. In fact, you could look at almost the entire expanse of public schooling history in the United States and see civil rights abuses. And this is one of the things that really, you know, I try not to get too emotional about this, but this is something that really makes me angry, is there has been this sort of uh, upswelling of people saying, well, the way we're going to combat school choice is we're going to say, School choice was used for bad reasons after Brown v. Board with the creation of segregation academies. Therefore, all school choice is bad, which ignores the, like I said, almost the entire history of public schooling in the United States, which was segregated certainly based on race. Often, uh, if you're African-American, you weren't allowed to get an education at all because of government rules. And then we know that uh, the public schools often that that existed, the groups that they would accept, often they were very hostile to those groups. And so most infamous is Roman Catholics, who lots of people thought, well, Roman Catholics are not going to be able to be proper American citizens. And, you know, we'll let them try. And, and the way we're going to let them try is they have to come to public schools, and those public schools will teach them that... Um, that duty to the church or connection to the church or not being Protestant is not going to enable you to be American. And unless you change, you are an outcast, essentially. And so Roman Catholics had to set up their own system of schools because the public schools were uh, overtly hostile to them. And then we saw similar things with lots of immigrants, where immigrants came in and people said, you know what, we're going to use the schools to assimilate them, to make them into proper Americans. And often what proper American meant was disparage all these things about immigrants, their language, their culture, and say, "These these are all wrong. And unless you change them, you can't be a proper American. And what this often did was it was terrible for all the people who were kind of in the out groups. And it didn't do anything to unify us. If anything, it made us angry. And we continue to see that in public schooling today. People saying, these schools won't give me what I need and what I want. 
religious people is the most obvious because constitutionally now we say there can be no religion in public schools. And religious people say, but I've got to have religion and education, and I've got to pay for these schools. But we also see lots of examples where the schools will not teach the history of, of different groups. There are very famous uh, ongoing fights and litigation in Tucson, Arizona over this. And so the public schools have been really a often, and I don't think it's always intentional, but often a terrible place for respecting diversity. And so that's the first thing we need to understand. And the second thing is, it's certainly true, and we see it, uh, there's a big sort of to-do conflict in Florida right now, where there is, I think the estimate was maybe around 10% of schools that participate, uh, or that that take kids with scholarships that are funded through the scholarship tax credit program. They are Christian or religious schools. I think almost all of them Christian, but you know, sort of conservative, traditional uh, Christian schools that have policies that are anti-LGBTQ. Now, the Christian schools probably think of it not so much as anti-LGBTQ as pro-Christian morals. Regardless, people are saying, well, this is outrageous because they're discriminating against gay people. And it's totally understandable why people have that view. And it is totally understandable why people may be very angry at that, those schools. But as a matter of civil rights, people also have religious rights. They have a right not just to believe things, but to act on those beliefs. School choice is the way to make sure people with different and conflicting beliefs can all be treated equally under the law. They control the money and they choose the values that are taught in the schools that they want or the history that they want taught in the schools that they want or the culture in the schools that they want. And then they don't have to fight about it. You don't have to have winners and losers. Everybody can choose what they want. And that's crucial because the role of government is to be neutral with regards to people's values and what history they think is most important, not to pick winners and losers. So, Neil, let's take that for a second, because so much of what you just referred to, you know, it underpins um, the reason for a case that we've talked a lot about on this podcast so far. In fact, we just had Dick Comer on a couple episodes ago, Espinosa v. Montana Department of Revenue. And so you're referring, you know, to Blaine amendments and they're in the sort of the dark history of Blaine amendments. So my question for you is less about the case itself. And more about, in a scenario, and I don't know many people that actually think this scenario is going to happen, but that Blaine amendments are struck down and then suddenly, you know, private school choice programs are flourishing. When you have private school choice programs or any kind of mechanism that allows kids to use government money to go to faith-based schools um, um, at scale, um, to what extent do you think we're going to get into even more of a dialogue about striking the right balance between, you know, um, between religious freedom, religious liberty, and then what some would consider um, the way in which some faith-based schools um, are not respecting civil rights in terms of admission standards or maybe even hiring standards. Do you see that could Espinoza, if it opens up more choice, um, take this conversation even further? And, uh, and what do you think the direction would be? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, as you alluded to, uh, I think that the Espinosa case is very important because it gets to the heart of the question of does government get to treat people differently if they're religious versus non-religious? 
And my hope is that the court is going to rule and say, no, the government does not get to do that. The government does not get to say we're going to eliminate programs just because some people may use it of their own choice and their own volition for religious education. Uh, that said, I think if the more that school choice grows, the more often we're going to have people objecting, saying, yeah, I don't like that somebody is going to choose a school that I don't like. Uh, I'm not actually sure that we're going to have a much bigger debate about that because already it seems to me the loudest voices against school choice are saying, well, this is unacceptable because somebody may take it to a school that has religious values that I don't like. So maybe we can't take this one to 11. You know, we're already at 10. Maybe we're just at nine, but maybe we're already at 10 on that objection. It can't get any worse. Uh, I do, though, think that we have to really sort of emphasize two things. One is that in a free society, people should be able to choose things that I don't like. As long as they are not imposing it on other people, our assumption uh, and our what we should defend is liberty. We should assume that people should have liberty unless they're imposing themselves on other people. And so we are going to have to say, look, if you don't like it, feel free. In fact, we may even encourage people to speak out and say what this school stands for is reprehensible. We won't, we won't associate with the people who go there. We will condemn what it stands for. But what we will not do is allow people to be treated unequally under the law, which means by the government. We'd say that that has to be off limits. The other thing people have to understand, and, and this takes some doing and getting past a little complacency is, uh, I always like to promote this. Anybody who hears, who's heard me before knows I promote this, but I run something called the Public Schooling Battle Map. You Google it, you can find it, and it, it catalogs values and identity-based conflicts in public schools. And so what people need to understand is that if we don't allow diverse people to choose schools that they want, we're going to have more social conflict because we're putting them in a zero-sum game of you pay for a set of schools. If you want them to teach what you want, you've got to win politically and the other people have to lose. And do we want a system that is inherently going to cause divisive social conflict? That is a huge problem. What we have seen is Often that conflict is avoided. It happens and it's terrible, and you can see thousands of examples on that map. But it's also avoided, but the way it's avoided often is we just ignore any topic that is um, controversial, or we sort of soft-pedal it. There was a great research done by two researchers named Berkman and Plutzer at Penn State who found, you may have seen this about 10 years ago, they surveyed uh, high school biology teachers around the country and found most of them just either skip or soft pedal evolution because it is too hot a topic. We have trouble with schools not teaching civics. In part, that seems to be because civics starts to bring in lots of controversial political issues and schools want to avoid controversy. We also see that private schools and schools of choice do better at forming citizens, probably because people go there and they agree on what constitutes good civics, what's important in history, and then they can teach a more robust curriculum. So the other side of the conflicts we would be getting is the way we avoid conflict is to just avoid topics altogether, which sort of rips out much of the value and much of the heart of education. So even if you don't like what people will choose, we're all better off if we let people make those choices. 
You did a really good job of talking about the history from Brown forward, looking at options, choice, civil rights. You've been involved in this work long enough to understand not only politics, but also what semionics look like. A lot of this is meaning politics. If you were giving advice to the justices who were considering the Espinoza case, uh, in light of the fact that we had, at least those of us who support uh, parental choice, we saw the Zellman case, uh, which focused on a scholarship program in Cleveland as, the, as a right step. Espinoza equally could be important. If they were coming to you and asking for advice on how to think about this uh, from the perspective of a scholar, uh, someone who's seen how this has worked in the States, what would you offer as advice to them? Huh. Well, the first thing I'd say is I've been at this for a long time, and I think that's made me less uh, understand politics less than I thought I used to understand it. Um, <laughs> so I don't have great advice for a lot of people. Um, in terms of understanding how this will play in the real political world. Um, what I think is most important is that people, no matter who they are, you know, whether they're politicians, whatever side of the aisle they're on, is that they need to understand that we're all better off when government treats all people equally. Doesn't mean, again, that we have to like what they choose or do, and we are welcome to condemn it, but we're better off if the government doesn't pick winners and losers. And I think, you know, a lot depends on what's going to be the nuance of how this is decided. That as, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but it seems to me that much of the time the Supreme Court tries to find as narrow or to come up with as narrow a ruling as possible so that there's a slow, you know, understandable, digestible evolution of constitutional thought. But if they come up with something that essentially says, if you have a school choice program, it cannot say religious people can't participate, then I would say, look, obviously, if you're going to have a school choice program, no longer can you say that religious people can't participate. But then I think it's important that we continue to emphasize the message that you also do need school choice. You can't now use this as a reason to say, well, let's just not do school choice because it would you know, be able to go to religious people. Now we have to also say, look, we have a system that treats lots of people unequally. Uh, even if it's not the whole system, your district may do it or your state may do it. Um, and we should want choice for all sorts of reasons, even if you just have a district that doesn't teach math the way you'd like, you should be able to go to a school that teaches, or at least have the ability, the possibility of going to a school that teaches math the way you like. But we need to explain that, look, just because the court says in school choice, you have to allow religious participation. If people don't like religion, you also have to explain to them that you should want school choice even if it includes religion, because we're all better off. We're all better off when people can choose what they want. And it's going to be, you know, this is a, I wish I had sort of like a, a, a home run answer. It's like, do this and everything will be great. But all of this is always a, a slog. These are always sort of difficult, you know, kind of what they call wicked questions, because there is no one clear answer that everybody's going to accept. And so we just have to constantly be hammering home why school choice and ultimately why kind of liberty and freedom and equality under the law are essential, even when people use their freedom to do things we don't like. I think your answer has a lot of wisdom. Thanks a lot. That's the first time I've ever had a lot of wisdom. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know if that's true. Okay. So Neil, now I have a little bit more, we've been talking about some heavy stuff. I have a little bit more of a personal question about your own choices. And I've read on Twitter that you're like a barbecue aficionado now. Is that a thing? Yeah, do we have like three hours? Because now we're really getting into the good stuff. I, <laughs> so I, I do. I see like some exchanges between you and, and some other folks who, who might be listening that we shall not know. So talk to us. What, what's your personal? I, I'm a person who knows really nothing about barbecue. I'd like to drink beer at a barbecue. But could you tell me a little bit about your, your personal choice in barbecue? What's the best? How do you do it? Sure. I, I also know something about beer, although my tweeting and things probably gives the impression that I'm some uh, that I have some great deep knowledge. I tweet to give that impression, but that is a totally false impression. It's something I That's mess the around nature with. of tweeting, my friend. <laughs> that, that is true. Only I'm not really angry most of the time when I'm tweeting about it, which is also the nature of Twitter. Um, but uh, I like to mess around with it. it. Gives me something to do on the weekends. Gives me an excuse to sit around and not do productive things. Other than, you know, you can eat your barbecue. And it gives me an excuse to buy toys, which I like. Um, I would say that my favorite uh, barbecue is probably uh, uh, brisket. Um, I'm a particular to beef barbecue. And I know we, we you have listeners probably in Texas and some in the Carolinas and in Tennessee. And they're all like, oh, how could you possibly say Texas when you, you know, that's not as good as real Carolina barbecue or whatever. I'm from New Jersey, so I can pick any of the ones that I want because I don't have a, a vested uh, state interest in any of them. But I, I certainly like to do uh, a nice brisket, uh, take lots of time with it, got to be oak wood. I don't always have the post oak, which Texans say you have to use, but I just can't always get that. And any oak works well for me on brisket or any beef. If you're making steaks, always throw a little, uh, always throw a little oak smoke on those guys too. And Gerard, as our new guest, I, I've got no opinion on this. What's your, you've lived in a lot of places. Do you have an opinion on barbecue? If you would have asked me this question in 1986, I would have given you a great uh, answer. But starting back in 1987, I moved toward becoming a pescatarian, so I don't eat red meat. So I've had barbecue in the 80s. Yeah, I'm yeah, close well, there with you. I'm close. But so you could bar- you could put some barbecue sauce on your on your salmon, right? Exactly. Well, well I could recommend some plank grilling. It does not have to be uh, meat. You can plank grill salmon's really good on cedar. Some people like it on alder wood. Uh, but that always adds a little extra pop to your salmon. I've tried it with some other fish, doesn't work out so well, but definitely works with salmon. All right, see, learn something new all the time on The Learning Curve. He's the great Neil McCluskey. Neil, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. It was a pleasure to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. This week's commentary of the week actually comes from Edutopia, um, and it's a piece about new studies link the arts to crucial cognitive skills. So as many of our listeners know, I am a mother of young children. I do not consider myself to be very artistic. My husband forces those kids to take piano lessons, and I love watching them do it because they have to suffer. There's a part of me that wishes I would have been forced to take piano lessons um, as a kid. And now um, I think that that part of me has justification. So New research outlined um, outlined in this article outlines actually a couple different studies. I'm going to give us give our listeners a couple quotes here. New research reveals that the arts may prime our neural circuitry for a broad range of activity activity 
boosting crucial cognitive and social skills like spoken and written language, focus, self-control. And this self-control is one that I'm really working on with my three-year-old and, and six-year-old boys, especially, and empathy. So sort of like the things that, that teachers always told you, like music classes and art classes would do for you. Um, but there's some really great quotes in here. So um, this person, Mr. Cool, explains in a TED Talk. I'm sorry, I want to make sure. It's Patricia Cool. It's Patricia Cool. Um, also... Um, did, conducted a study, the same study with Christina Zhao. They say of their study that they can see that babies who have been through, babies who have been through the music experience have greater abilities to hold attention when that's important and to switch attention when it's appropriate to switch. So they can see the baby, they can detect the babies doing this, and they can note that this means they think that music is affecting executive function. And that's not the only thing this piece on on Edutopia talks about. Um, To get to something that's a little more Ed wonky and the researchers out there can, um, who aren't cognitive neural scientists can appreciate, a study, a major 2019 study tracked over 10,000 students in Texas that participated in arts programs. And they concluded that those students performed better on state writing tests, were better behaved, had more compassion for fellow students, hello, and were more engaged in school. This complemented a previous study showing that drawing had a dramatic effect on memory that helped these kids to outperform. So I know uh, a lot of my friends out there would say, well, this is just, you know, an an illustration of why we should stop testing and and, um, make sure that and replace everything with the arts. And eh, I don't think we should stop testing. I do think we need to make more space in our school day, meaning extending it, to have time for the arts and to integrate it, to integrate these activities throughout the school day. But what this really says to me, what this really speaks to me about is that so often the arts and the ability to access the arts, whether it's in school or outside of school in auxiliary programming, is really a luxury that the upper middle class and wealthy in this society can increasingly afford, right? You can pay to have the piano teacher come to your house. You can pay for the very expensive, by the way, violin or, you know, name whatever art class after school enrichment activity that you want. And too often, especially with the growing divide in this country, it's, it's people who also don't have access to these things in school, who don't have the means to access them outside of school. And so this is just another reminder that we have to think of the um, opportunity gap is going way beyond schools. It's going way beyond academics. It has to be about enrichment and providing folks with the opportunities that we know help kids be their best selves. No, I actually support uh, what you're saying and the research for over a decade has been pretty clear about that. I'm on the national board for the After School Alliance. And part of my joining that board is because I believe that after school programs or what some call out of school time is tremendously important to the development of students. What takes place between, let's say, 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. is important, but we know that between 3 and 6 p.m. for a number of children who find themselves in trouble, those are the, some of the trouble hours. And so there are a lot of arts programs, whether it's um, the arts in terms of literature, the arts in terms of painting, or as you mentioned with, P- um, with the piano. I'm a big supporter of it. I just need to think we need to find unique ways to include that in the school day. But if we can't because of uh, resources, then, yeah, there's an out-of-school time market, and there are a lot of adults who uh, have time to support this. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Fantastic. you play any instruments, Gerard? Or are you a painter? 
for example? No, I play the tabletop. That's my only uh, instrument. <laughs> so that's what I have. <laughs> I'm, sure your fam- I'm sure your family loves that very much. <laughs> All right. Exactly. And now with the Tweet of the Week. So the Tweet of the Week for me comes from David Brooks, uh, writer for the New York Times. He published this one in the Atlantic. And here's his tweet. We're likely living through the most rapid change in family structure in human history. The causes are economic, cultural, and institutional all at once. And he's talking primarily about the nuclear family and why he thinks it failed for the last decade. I think it's an important uh, topic, and I think it's one that people of all political persuasion should read for three reasons. Number one, it's often a hot topic when we say family structure. It's coded. And I think the way that he unpacks it is worth reading for people, again, who may come at this from a different level. Number two, for those of us who are involved in reforming schools or getting families involved, there is a lot of literature out there about the importance of family and its impact upon student learning and student outcomes. How we define family uh, is changing with time. And I think he addresses some of that as well. And then third, you know, 60, 50 plus years ago, we had the Moynihan Report. And that report was controversial at that time when, you know, 37-year-old Patrick Moynihan, who at the time was in uh, working for federal government, talked about the structure of the Negro family and its impact on uh, not only education, but its relationship to crime, its relationship to poverty. So it's an article that surely is already ruffled feathers, both good and bad. But I think it's important to read because as we talk about family, uh, it's important because the definition transcends across time. We think nuclear family, well, that's one thing. But a number of families have you know, different structures with different outcomes. So for me, it was important. I do think the term, the phrase family structure in human history, I think often we use broad terms like that. When we say human history, it tends to be uh, history often of Western Uh, history alone, and I'm a Western supporter and guy. Uh, But I do think that, you know, when you took enslaved Africans um, off the continent as early as 1555 and moved them to South America, primarily to Brazil, up to the end of slavery in 1865, that that equally had an impact upon family structures of those who you left and those here. So human history, I think there are probably some more challenges in human history that are bigger than this, but it's worth at least having a conversation about. All right. David Brooks, always making us think, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so our, our listeners, you've done it again, made it through what I think was a pretty darn good episode of The Learning Curve. So happy to have new co-host Gerard Robinson. Gerard, thanks so much for being here. And next week, we put on our, I don't know, we put on our like statistics hats, our psychometric hats. We are going to spend some time with the wonderful Margaret Mackey Raymond founder and director of the Center for Research on Education Outcomes at Stanford University to talk charter schools and beyond. All right, Gerard, be with you next week. See you next week. 